Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Okay, everybody, this is Aaron Weinacht, and today we're going to talk to John Hyduke about his new book, uh, Music Wars. Uh, John's a colleague of mine here at the uh, University of Montana Western, and he's also a, a first-class individual. So, uh, John Hyduke, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on. You bet. Uh, you want to start us off by telling us something about yourself? A little uh, bio would be good. Okay, yeah, I... Uh... Uh, as you know, I was uh, born, raised in Western New York, went to school at the University of Buffalo, got a PhD there in American cultural history. And uh, I've been here at the University of Montana Western for uh, 21 years in December and uh, have enjoyed mostly uh, the time here uh, teaching and uh, working in our block system, our unique block system. <laughs> okay. The uh, uh now, I was wondering uh, if you could kind of tell us a bit about um, uh, how you came to write the book overall. Like, what was sure. the, the background on it? Well, in many ways, it's a, uh, a dramatic revision of my Ph.D. dissertation. Um, the story behind this actually goes back to when I first started graduate school. I was looking for a part-time job. And I found a position at a record store in Buffalo, New York, a place called Record Theater, which billed itself as the largest record store in the world. Uh, I never knew if that was actually true, but it was a pretty big place. And uh, I worked there all throughout graduate school, and I was very interested in music. I'd always been a fan, but being involved in the store, I uh, got I was exposed to more of a behind the scenes part of the music industry. And uh, eventually I was the assistant to the buyer and things would pop up relations with record labels. We, uh, we uh, service some radio stations. So I, I got a little bit of a broad view of the music industry and, um, and, and it fascinated me. So I was studying history and, uh, and working this part-time job on the side. And I thought I'd, try and find a way to combine the two. And this initially occurred in, a, in the context of a seminar. I wrote a couple of papers about licensing, music licensing, and, uh, and it just kept building. So when it came time to choose a thesis topic, I thought I could do something on that. Um, and uh, so the, the PhD dissertation was constructed around a series of disputes that occurred within the um, uh, popular music industry back in the 1940s and 1950s. And uh, at that time, being a graduate student, uh, the dissertation ended up being um, <laughs> filled with lots of theory that I stuck in there to try and impress my professors. And, uh, and frankly, it was, it, was a, uh, it was a great project. I enjoyed working on it. But in the end, um, I had this monstrosity that had a lot more extraneous information than, uh, than was probably necessary. So after a number of years went by, did some other things, uh, did some research in other areas. I, I just kept going back to the, the narrative, the story that sort of informed the uh, dissertation and thought I could do a much cleaner and much more um, uh, concise version of that story by basically stripping out all of the theory that I felt obligated to include in the dissertation. Well, of course, if it got you to pass your dissertation, John, uh, you know, we can't really say that it wasn't necessary, can we? <laughs> well, no, I guess that's true. Um, I mean, it was it was there for a reason. And, I, and I'm proud of the dissertation. I, I, I don't mean to, to in any way uh, demean it. But as, as you know, after you've done something like that, you, you're looking for other ways to kind of um, – um, maybe this is an unfortunate word, but to exploit that. I mean, I hoped I could publish the dissertation and that proved to be a struggle. I mined it for a couple of articles and that was fine. 
but um, more and more, as I say, I, it just struck me as, as something a little bit more unwieldy than it need, needed to be. And so about six years ago, I was able to uh, uh, get a sabbatical and I spent six months going back over the, the same essential narrative following that, that same series of disputes, uh, minus the, uh, the chapter that ended up turning, being turned into articles. Uh, but looking at it with a, with a fresh focus, um, initially the, um, uh, the dissertation was all about uh, accommodation and how um, uh, minority groups and, uh, and disaffected Southerners and so forth were integrated into the mainstream of popular culture. And that was still kind of an ongoing theme with, uh, with the revision. But in the new version, I tried to tell the story a little bit more plainly and lay out the details of uh, what was happening on, uh, more or less on, on the human scale, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and again, trying to um, not, let, not have it be buried in, uh, in, uh, in jargon and, and terminology that, uh, uh, that I think in a way kind of distracted from the, the inherent uh, drama of, uh, of what I wanted to say. Um, that, that being, I, and I guess I should lay out my thesis for you, uh, that, that through this series of disputes, the groups that were not artists and not the audience for popular music had a role to play in shaping how the music evolved. And that in relation to rock and roll in particular, that occurred because during each of these disputes, the gatekeepers, the uh, record company executives, the radio networks, the licensing uh, organizations, the musicians union. During these disputes, which almost always originated over money, they employed rhetoric. They employed terms for public consumption in which they argued that this, this music is more important. It's more significant than just entertainment. And I think that was something that the younger generation who embraced rock and roll at the end of the 1950s kind of picked up on that, th that the music was something more than just an opportunity to go out and dance. And that becomes really evident, I think, in the 1960s, which was a little bit beyond the scope of the story that I told. But I wanted to focus on how those aspects of the business side of the equation, as opposed to the artistic side of the equation, contributed to, to building that mindset that this, that this music, that popular music in general, was, was something that had more uh, import than, than just being a diversion, something you did on Saturday night. Right. right. I had actually a question on that. Uh, um, well, sorry, I'm getting some feedback here, but the, uh, I had a question about um, something you said in your introduction, kind of along those those same lines. Uh, as I read your introduction, it seemed to indicate that you think that rock and roll has kind of made the world we live in, um, as opposed to, you know, kind of describing it. Um, so given what you said about how, you know, business influences and so on, um, how those affected, uh, or, you know, the rock and roll's development, like, you know, can you comment at all at this point? on how rock and roll kind of made our world versus being made by it. Sure. And, and actually that's, that's one of the first things that I tried to set up in the book, that there's something that we can identify as rock and roll culture, which is related to the music, but isn't strictly about the music, uh, that it involves um, a way of looking at the world that is a little bit more open with regard to issues like civil rights, uh, to issues related to sex and sexual identity, um, related to um, social causes, group identity. Um, and, and this filters out in, you know, sort of straight political activism by the 1960s and 70s, but also in things like fashion, that, that people embrace music that will serve as a major factor in defining their identity, their sense of who they are and how that plays out in just about every walk of life. And I really believe that was something that was evident in what, you know, is commonly referred to as the baby boomer generation came, coming of age in the, uh, at the end of the fifties and into the 1960s. I, I'd probably say that, uh, that while it had a major impact on shaping 
life, in, at least in the United States, in the uh, latter decades of the 20th century. I'm not sure if I, ha- if I, if I had to uh, make the claim that, that it continues to have that, carry that same weight and have that same influence today. I'm not sure that I could make that case as strongly. So I think it, it's something that shapes the late 20th century, but maybe something that started to fade as, as, as the next several generations have passed and, and maybe embraced other means of defining who they are. But, uh, but for, um, for that period, again, beginning at the end of the 1950s and through the end of the 20th century, you see rock and roll just being integrated into so many different aspects of life. Uh, and, um, and, and I don't think that that would have happened if that first wave of fans hadn't sensed that there was something more to this music than uh, just something that, uh, you know, was a passing fancy. Um, when, when you see the emergence, again, in the, more in the 60s, I suppose, of artists like, uh, like Bob Dylan and the Beatles and, and, and many, many others, it becomes pretty clear that they have uh, internalized that notion that uh, if they have something to say and they want it to be taken seriously, that they can, that they can make that statement through their music. You know, I graduated from high school in 96, John, and uh, a lot of the cliques in my high school were music-based. Sure. Uh, I mean, I ran with the metalheads just in case any, you know, you're, you're curious. Uh, my, my spine still hasn't recovered from the head banging, I don't think. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I don't know where the, when you, where you went to high school, where the, you know, where their clicks kind yeah, of based oh, sure. on musical tastes. Yeah. Oh, there definitely was. But I, I was, I'm a little older than you. So there was the disco click and there were metal heads. Uh, I don't think punk had quite uh, infiltrated my school. Although I remember one girl who came in one day with her, a, a very bizarre haircut for, for, for our crowd. Uh, and she was, yeah, she was probably the one person who had embraced punk in the late seventies. Uh, I, I was more of a jazz bow. <laughs> and I'm not sure if that was a very large click, but uh, but there were two or three of us who decided that all pop music was uh, was crummy, and uh, and so we were looking for alternatives in jazz. Well, I mean, seriously, though, according to the you know what how I read your book uh, and where it gets to the questions about authenticity uh, now and then, I mean, the smaller your click is, probably you can argue the more authentic it is, right? Exactly, and I think that that was something that. Um, that again helped to define somebody's sense of identity. Uh, that authenticity, how, however you define the authenticity, it was clear that you had to be real. You had to be um, authentic in order to have any kind of credibility with your peers. Hmm. But, is there is there anything you know, you'd want to say? Uh, you know that, that you haven't about kind of the overall focus of the book from the introduction. Well. Again, I, I'd emphasize that uh, you know there have been dozens of really good histories of the early days of rock and roll, and although my title, the subtitle anyway, includes that idea of rock and roll, um, my focus isn't really ultimately on the music so much as the way that people talked about the music, and again, with a special emphasis on the people who are in positions of authority or power, um, the disputes just to make it a little bit clearer that I look at, start with uh, um, the ASCAP radio ban of 1940. That was a, uh, ASCAP is uh, the American Associate, or the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. It's a licensing organization whose roots go back to the years right around World War I. And uh, they were a very dominant force and uh, they collected royalties from Anybody who used popular music or any way popular music written or published by its members, ASCAP members, and they um, would then distribute those to their uh, to their clients. Um, they uh, they had a lot of carried a lot of weight. They had uh, contracts with radio broadcasters that were very favorable to ASCAP. And in 1940, they decided, given how much clout they had, that they would up the ante and ask for more money. And the broadcasters rebelled. Um, the consequence of that was that the uh, uh, the uh, ASCAP controlled music, which was virtually all the most popular stuff. If uh, if you're familiar with pop music of that generation, uh, material written by people like Cole Porter and Jerome Kern and Irving Berlin was all controlled by ASCAP. So when the broadcasters said that they wouldn't uh, wouldn't broadcast that anymore, that was a big hole in what people expected in terms of popular music. 
Um, anyway, I seem to be going into more detail. Actually, this is the, the next chapter, really. But uh, that was the first dispute. The second one was the uh, American Federation of Musicians uh, ban on recording during World War II. I look at the Red Scare in the music industry um, and then the evolution of network and uh, local radio in the 1950s and the rise of disc jockeys, which created its own little hullabaloo. And then uh, finish up with the um, with the payola scandals of 1959, 1960. So each of those in in sequence um, and, and by themselves are an interesting story, and they comprise the chapters of the book. The um, the the thing that links them together is that again, in each of those instances, there's there's almost always an economic argument being made between the uh, uh, the various figures in the within the in, uh, industry um, but when they take those those uh, battles to the public they almost always translate it into this is why this music is important this is why this music is uh, patriotic this is why this music needs to be uh, protected and preserved and uh, as I say those those are the factors that I think eventually register with with the younger generation when they embrace a music that isn't approved by <laughs> groups like ASCAP, um, well, they have a ready argument to make why it's significant because ASCAP has provided them with that rhetoric. Hmm. I was curious uh, on your first chapter there, kind of, so you just gave us a nice overview there of, of each chapter in succession and what ties them together. But then back to your, your first chapter, you mentioned in there that the, the music industry was fairly standardized at about 1940. I think that yes. was the, the word you used. Uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate on what range of factors made it that way. Sure. Well, things were controlled by a relatively small number of companies. Uh, you had a several major recording companies. You had uh, three uh, major radio networks, which uh, broadcast an awful lot of music. And not too surprisingly, they favored music by the recording companies that they actually shared an interest in, uh, ownership interest. And then there were the licensing uh, groups. Well, really only one at that time, which was ASCAP, which represented publishers. So you had music publishers, recording companies, and broadcasters, and they were they were very well integrated. Uh, this, this was actually something that was a, a fairly recent development, like a lot of industries, things were kind of you know, Wild West in the 19th century in this regard. And of course, that's even before radio was around. Um, and But as things uh, evolved into the 1920s, and especially into the 1930s, uh, there was consolidation. And the consolidation led to a kind of monolithic view of what the public wanted. Uh, and what they wanted from the industry perspective was what the industry was prepared to give them because it provided profits back to the industry. Um, so you had marginalized styles of music like uh, like uh, what was called hillbilly at the time or country music today uh, or ethnic music, uh, blues music. These, these were uh, styles that were performed and popular among certain segments of the population. But within the monolithic um, popular music industry, they were mostly ignored. They, they didn't have a place, partly because they, the uh, um, those, those large companies didn't control the copyrights on those songs. They didn't control the performers. And so um, going from the 20s into the 1930s, that music virtually disappears from the mass mentality. Uh, again, there are pockets, regional places where you could uh, certainly find any, any kind of music. But on those, uh, those large purveyors of, uh, of mass entertainment, they were virtually invisible. And, and so that led to standardization. They would play things that they thought were unof inoffensive, uh, maybe especially with regard to um, radio, who, of course, had to uh, curry favor with advertisers. They didn't want to alienate anybody. So, Do you get the impression that um, the people on the whole were happy with that? I mean, there's, there's – uh you know, is there kind of a, enough of a common set of tastes that few people are really demanding anything else? I mean, are people, you know, yeah. they don't get to hear about Robert Johnson's deal with the devil, but they want to? Uh, 
Well, that, but that's it. It's, it. It comes down to exposure because it was such a closed system, at least for uh, the better part of 20 years. The, um, the public didn't necessarily know that there was other stuff out there. Really. Those who did often embraced it. There are lots of great stories about uh, jazz fans uh, who would hear one thing and decide there's got to be more of this out there and literally go knocking on the doors in, uh, in poor black neighborhoods asking people if they had any old 78s. And, uh, and sort of rescuing, <laughs> rescuing this music that had otherwise been forgotten, yeah. um, and 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 not necessarily having a place to expose it, but 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 collecting those things and making them available years later when people started asking those questions again. What you know, where did this stuff come from? And and a lot of that's associated with rock and roll because, as, as you know, uh, you know, talking about heavy metal, you know, somebody like Jimmy Page certainly was well versed in those classic uh, country blues. Oh, certainly. And, and, and he was exposed to that because collectors had managed to uh, preserve those things for the few years where they were hard to come by. And then by the end of the 50s, early 60s, they started to reappear. Well, James or um, uh, John Paul Jones, uh, you know, his bass style came straight from James Jamerson out of Motown. Right. Jane Roots and so on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, 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 yeah, I think that uh, when when people were exposed to these other styles of music, they often leapt at them. They, I mean, they loved it. Um, during that ASCAP band that I mentioned, when you when you couldn't hear compositions by Cole Porter on the radio because because ASCAP said we're not going to let you have our music if you don't pay our fees, uh, the radio stations had to scramble and fill in the the time with something else. And although this is often exaggerated in some of the more other standard histories, one of the things they did was look for um, uh, music that was not covered by ASCAP. And that meant things like country and blues. And uh, although it took a while for that really to take off, once somebody heard Pistol Pack and Mama by Al Dexter, which was the first sort of giant, giant country hit, uh, you know, post ASCAP, uh, it, it was, it was a, a phenomenon. And before you knew it, there were all kinds of other country artists because once people were exposed, they found that they did like it. They just needed to know it was out there before they could search it out. Well, in my old rock band, we once uh, assuaged a pretty ugly looking bar crowd by pulling out Hank Williams' No Teardrops Tonight. So right? I, can, <laughs> I can attest that that still works. Uh, sure. sure. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that, and, and you know, I've been talking about the broadcasters primarily, but the, the record companies operated kind of the same way. They, they, even though they recorded multiple styles of music, there was a built-in assumption that certain people weren't interested in certain kinds of music. So they would record blues artists, but then they would only market those in uh, in communities where there were substantial African American populations. So if you live in a place like like Dillon, Montana, there, there would not have been any place that you could buy or order a, a blues record uh, just because the record companies would not assume that anybody in Dillon, Montana wanted to hear that kind of stuff. Yeah, I can see that. I remember a guy when I was in college asking me what I was listening to, and I told him I was listening to some uh, uh, blues of some kind. I don't remember what specifically, but he said, how come you're listening to that black music? Really? And, yeah, that, that was in uh, the early 2000s. Yeah, so it's uh, those those maybe those old attitudes kind of die hard. I don't know. Yeah, and you know, different people have different tastes, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, not everybody likes everything, uh, but uh, but again, I think more often than not, when you're exposed to something new, there's a, there's a good chance that it's going to speak to you, or it's going to, or, or it's just going to move your feet. You know, get you want to get up and dance and stuff. That uh, uh, that you become enthusiastic really quick. Oh, certainly. Yeah, if you can if you can keep your toe from tapping when listening to Robert Johnson, you're better than me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I'm I'm curious. Then uh, um, I'm thinking here of what's in the the second chapter of the book, John. About could you maybe elaborate a little bit on how what amounts to an economic feud between artists and managers ultimately contributes to cultural change? Like how a how right. a predominantly an econ argue, economic argument, excuse me, uh, somehow morphs into some much broader cultural shift. Sure, and, and I'll, I'll give you an example from the. Um uh, the a- AFM band, the American Federation of Musicians, uh, they were headed up by a guy named James C. Petrillo, who was uh, kind of a little tin pot dictator over his uh, his domain, which was the Musicians Union back in the 1940s. 
And uh, one of the big technological breakthroughs of that period was the uh, arrival of jukeboxes. And so a lot of uh, venues, uh, nightclubs, bars, restaurants, whatever, were putting jukeboxes into their facilities and stocking them with records. And so you could go in and you'd be out for dinner and you could uh, put a nickel in and listen to a song that you enjoyed. Um, well, the musicians union got up in arms about this because many of those same venues had previously employed live musicians. And with the installation of these machines, the live musicians lost their jobs. So uh, James C. Petrillo, the head of the union, decided that uh, something had to be done. And in 1943, again, the union had contracts with recording companies. They tried to work with the recording companies to get them to stop stocking the jukeboxes. They refused because that was a moneymaker for them. And so uh, the union decided to end all of its contracts. They would not allow um, union musicians to record. And if so, if you were a member of the AFM, you were banned from going into a recording studio and making records for the better part of two years. Um, the upshot of this was that there was still a demand for records by the jukebox operators, by consumers in the home. They still wanted to listen to music, but they couldn't buy music that was performed by members of the union, which amounted to all of the most popular big band leaders, for example, of uh, that time, the swing era. So what happens? The record companies have to come up with something new. Uh, this is, by the way, where uh, Frank Sinatra first exploded because they would bring Frank Sinatra in. He was a big band singer, but vocalists were not members of the union. So they'd bring him into the recording studio and he'd record a cappella or maybe with some backing singers. And those were some of his first big hits as a solo artist because it didn't require any union musicians. Um, but more to the point, more, and to, to, to answer the question, um, several small record labels began to pop up to service the demand. They didn't have any contracts with the union to begin with, but it didn't matter because they sought out music that also was not covered by the musicians' union. And this was another big impetus for country music and blues because the union, uh, first of all, it was, a, it was uh, segregated. It, it, it didn't invite black membership. Uh, it, there were a few places like New York and Los Angeles where there was a su significant number of uh, uh, African-American musicians that they formed segregated locals of the AFM, but that wasn't true everywhere. And, and blues musicians in particular, who typically only accompany themselves with a guitar or a uh, uh, harmonica, were not considered to be serious musicians. So the musicians union never recruited them. So when these small labels started to pop up to meet the demand, they looked for musicians who were not members of the union, and they introduced um, large numbers of blues artists and country artists into the mainstream because those records were going into the jukeboxes and, again, through exposure, finding a fan base and exploding. So um, in terms of the, the, the broader culture, people's horizons are expanding in terms of the kind of music that they're listening to. But I think also over time, also maybe building up an appreciation for certain regional distinctions in, in the ways that people express themselves, the ways that um, uh, you know, they communicate with one another. I think all of those things start to factor in. The, the biggest effect of this, to my mind anyway, and this is one of the arguments I make in the book, is that as those trends continue into the 1950s, even long beyond the ban, those small labels continue to market these, these uh, previously marginalized styles of music, they're embraced by young people. And uh, initially in the form of rhythm and blues, and then eventually evolving into rock and roll. And I think that that younger generation when they listened to this music that was being performed by African-American artists, began to raise serious questions about, uh, you know, I enjoy the music. It speaks to me, makes me want to dance. Why don't I see any of these people in my neighborhood? Why don't I see any of these, these, these people in my school? And I, I can't help but think, and, and it, there are a lot of um, perhaps coincidental uh, events that, uh, that sort of fuel this conclusion, uh, like the fact that uh, Elvis Presley's first record came out just a couple of months after the uh, Brown decision desegregating schools. 
But by the time rock and roll is starting to take root, 1955, 1956, I think young people are starting to reject the older nation, notions of, uh, of racial separation that had largely defined our society up until that point. And I think that an eye-opener for them was this music that they enjoyed and making that association. If I like the music, why, why am I discriminating against these people in other ways? Is there uh, is there specific uh, documentary evidence of that, like in the uh, you know sources from the civil rights movement? You know, uh, people who were involved in that, like in their memoirs or other reminiscences, do they indicate there are, that direction? There are. And and it actually kind of to some degree, I think, comes back to that authenticity too that you, that that you had brought up a moment ago. That um, you know the the way that the record industry was set up, if a, a record hit by an African-American artist, there was a tendency to cover it with a white artist. That is, have a white artist record the same song in order to cater to the white audience. But it was the the uh, youngsters, the teenagers, who rejected that. Um, in large measure, they decided they wanted the real thing. And so they sought out the uh, the originals uh, in ways that their parents had it, because that, that was a trend that, that of covering records that went back for, for several decades. But in the 1950s, the audience wanted the real thing, the young audience anyway. Um, but you do, you see that all the time in, in, in accounts by uh, uh, individuals who were active in the, uh, in the civil rights movement. By the 1960s, it, it becomes prevalent. I mean, you see the artists, the, the, them, uh, uh, again, Bob Dylan, I guess, is the classic example, or somebody like Joan Baez or Phil Oakes. And they're maybe coming more out of a, a folk music side of things, but they're embracing eventually also rock styles. Um, artists, you mentioned Motown. Uh, a lot of the songs that Motown put out were not intended to be civil rights anthems, but were embraced by the civil rights movement and individuals who were active going out and demonstrating and marching would talk about that. Uh, Dancing in the Street is, may, is maybe the, the, the example. Uh, there's a really good book by a guy named Mark Kurlansky that, uh, that talks about uh, dancing in the street as representative of that, uh, of that tendency. Hmm. That's, uh, I was curious too, John, I'm kind of moving on here to your, uh, uh, third chapter um so you can you know summarize if, if you if you want i uh, curious though uh when i when i read that that you're talking about canned music and this this also kind of relates to the authenticity theme uh, i was kind of wondering if people um people viewed uh becoming a professional rock and roller as as a bit as a bit of a devil's bargain and that you know, if you if you once you've recorded, it's there, right? It's it's, right. it's not changeable anymore. It doesn't evolve like you know traditional music that you play on the back porch and add things to and subtract other things from it and so on. Right. So I was I was wondering if if uh, if there's any of that dynamic among people who are playing music where, like, by recording, are you selling out or? Because that would be another way to look at, you know, you'd be looking sure. at recording in the, in the opposite direction from the way you cast it earlier. I, yeah. And, and that's, that is, it's an interesting dynamic in this whole story, because on the one hand, I'm kind of making the case that the music was something more than just this, uh, um, the, this entertainment commodity. But on the other other hand, it, it was a commodity. Uh, that's one of the features of rock music, maybe uh, more more prevalent than earlier uh, forms of uh, of popular music, at least in this country. That it was mostly associated with recordings. But that's not to say there there obviously wasn't live uh, performance as well. But uh, the live performance of early rock and roll artists typically was one or two songs. They'd be on a package tour with eight or ten different artists. They'd all get up and play three or four songs, basically their singles. So it, it was always directly linked to the record. And you know, to be honest, I'm sure that the artists, however much they wanted to express themselves, also wanted to make a living. So that that commodity feature never goes away. It's always there. Um, how that affects the authenticity. Well, I think again, it goes back to getting the, the more raw unvarnished version of, well, whatever the song is that you'd listen, you'd want to hear, uh, fats dominoes, uh, uh, walking to new orleans or i'm walking instead of ricky nelson's version or you'd want to hear uh tutti frutti by little richard instead of pat boone 
and uh, and the authenticity was was in the grooves. It was in the in the record as much as in in uh, a more less uh, commercial uh, <laughs> enterprise. Okay, is there is there anything else you wanted to say at this point or elaborate on what's in your third chapter there about uh, you know canned and recorded music? Well, the, the can, yeah, the canned music that refers directly to the jukeboxes. That was the oh. term that was used by Petrilla to complain about the jukeboxes. And uh, in that in that regard, the, uh, maybe I, I I should just say something about the band. There were a couple of interesting features to this that that sort of fueled again the rhetoric that was used during the dispute. It was primarily an, an economic dispute. The union wanted to protect the jobs of its uh, of its members, and the jukebox operators and the record companies more specifically wanted to. To, uh, have cheap entertainment and make money off the nickels going into the jukebox. So it was really about dollars and cents in a lot of ways, but it happened against the backdrop of World War II. Uh, during World War II, virtually every union uh, labor organization in the country promised they would not go on strike and they'd contribute to the war effort. And the musicians union, Petrillo, had made a pledge uh, directly to Franklin Roosevelt saying, don't worry, the musicians are here to help build morale and do everything we can to pitch in, help win the war. So when the band came, it was seen as a, uh, a real violation of that pledge, of that promise. And, uh, and, and that fueled the rhetoric. Uh, the union was being unpatriotic. The union wasn't contributing to the war effort. The union was, um, you know, uh, uh, undermining the, 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 our fighting force by not providing them with uh, moments entertainment when they came off the front line or the defense workers when they got off their shift were being deprived of something. And uh, it was something that, uh, that Petrillo had to uh, uh, had to address. Uh, and one way that they addressed it was they continued to make recordings that were sent directly into the armed forces so that they would have records to play in their off hours. Um, but as I say, that, that contributed to the, uh, the, the nature of the debate. It wasn't your, your typical uh, labor uh, stoppage. It was, it was something that seemed to have an impact or anyway was perceived to have an impact on whether or not we were going to win the war. So there's a real irony there then that, you know, since we tend to associate uh, rock and roll in the 60s and 70s so much with the anti-war movement, that right. of its background ultimately goes back to the practice of total war. <laughs> no, that's true. Although I don't know that you'd have too many people quite yet in, in 1943 talking about rock and roll. That's true. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm overstating. Uh, well, but but the roots are there. Uh, and again, I, I, uh, that's part of what I, what I was trying to demonstrate was that the um, the perception of how music can be something more than just entertainment is is already evident in these debates, which really, for the most part, revolve around what uh, what we you know call big band or swing music more than anything else, because those were the most popular groups at that time. The, uh, so on to your, your next chapter there where you're talking about the Red Scare and, right. the, and the music industry. Um, I'm just going to give us an overview here of how those two things are related. Sure. Um, well, there are two things that I try and establish in that chapter. The first is that unlike the movie industry, the record industry was starting to fragment already by the late 1940s, partly as a result of the earlier disputes, the rise of independent record labels uh, being one of the consequences of those earlier disputes and the introduction uh, into the mainstream of those previously marginalized styles of music. So the, the music industry had, had ceased to be quite the, that powerful monolith that dominated the 1930s. And, um, and so when it when people began to throw accusations around of, of individuals who were uh, communists or fellow travelers or whatever, sympathetic to left-wing causes, inevitably there were a large number of musicians who were, were subject to those accusations. But unlike the movie industry, Hollywood, though it was very difficult to uh, – to do anything about that because there was no central authority anymore. Uh, certainly artists found their records banned or uh, lost recording contracts, but there were, was always somebody else available to put you on stage or, 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 or to open up their studios to you uh, because these independent record labels didn't really care about those, uh, 
those political charges. So that was one of the points I want to make. It's this, this idea of fragmentation in the industry that um, uh, that was a, a major factor in the arrival of rock and roll too. But the other side of that is, again, going back to that, that idea of the rhetoric that was employed, how people argued about the role that music had in the context of trying to preserve these Native American values of uh, you know democracy and freedom and equality in opposition to what communism represented in that time frame. Uh, which was, uh, you know, totalitarianism and atheism, and uh, you know all the all the worst tendencies that were so antithetical to the American way. Um, the the irony here is that um, one of the causes that got caught up in all that was civil rights. The uh, you may you may know this, but the Communist Party in the United States had long sought to integrate themselves into African American communities, figuring that black folk were going to be pretty dissatisfied with uh, with the American system and be willing converts. And although that wasn't true, at least not in any significant way, um, it did create an impression that communists were pro-civil rights. And so in the, in the era of the Red Scare, anybody who was pro-civil rights was ipso facto sympathetic to communism. So as you saw these new styles of music emerging, um, rhythm and blues being the most prominent and the most direct link to uh, rock and roll a little bit later, um, you, you didn't, it didn't need to have any political content for it to be suspect. It didn't need to you know, overtly address issues of uh, nuclear proliferation or anything like that for somebody to be suspicious if the artist was, was African-American. And, um, and there were a number of artists, the most famous of which was probably Paul Robeson, but some others like Josh White and Hazel Scott, who actually did often appear at political rallies, um, who, um, would, um, uh, uh, raise money for, uh, different, uh, civil rights organizations like the Congress on Racial Equality or the NAACP. And as a consequence of those activities, they, they were put on lists as being sympathetic to communism, and they had to defend themselves. Um, one of the most popular groups in the early 1950s was the Weavers, which was a, uh, a folk vocal uh, outfit. Uh, Pete Seeger was a member, along with Lee Hayes and Fred Hellerman and, and Ronnie Gilbert. And th- some of them, including Seeger and Hayes, definitely had roots in the Communist Party. They'd been members in the 1940s and been active in radical circles. But they had, uh, in a sense, cleaned up their acts, so to speak, and started making some really, really popular uh, records. Uh, Good Night, Irene and Tazina, Tazina, and big, big hits until somebody discovered their background and uh, they lost their recording contract and, uh, uh, and were blacklisted. But they're, they're kind of the exception. It was really hard to blacklist people in the music industry because, as I say, there were all kinds of other outlets that were open to them to continue working, even if they weren't reaching the mass audience that they had previously had. So would it be fair to say then that uh, the you know, reprisals against musicians don't take the same character as reprisals against suspected communists in Hollywood simply because it's right. easier to make music than movies? Exactly, exactly. Because the industry wasn't quite as consolidated as Hollywood was at that time. So you, you couldn't, if, if one company decided they didn't want to have something to do with an artist, there was no guarantee the next company over wouldn't snap them up. I, I recall you mentioning that uh, you, th- you characterized the Red Scare as ultimately being about a fear of difference or fear of diversity was, I think, the word you used. So I was wondering then uh, if you kind of see the contemporary argument uh, from you know people who were in favor of, of you know attacks on people deemed to be red, as they said at the time. Uh, I mean, do you think that those people were being fundamentally cynical or dishonest? Uh, I think a lot of times they were. Right. I think that the uh, you know the 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 classic example of that I guess is somebody like Joseph McCarthy, who, who pretty clearly was doing uh, uh, what he did. Uh, to score political points and just uh, attain a degree of power. Um, and I think that uh, the, the concern, you know, it, again, it, this is where the, the commerce and the, and the art kind of intersects again, because the concern was that if there's an impression out there that audiences don't want to hear an artist who 
is suspect that they also won't buy the products being advertised on the radio program that plays that music or they'll identify that that artist with the label on the record uh, that he's put out and they won't buy anything else uh, regardless of the arts from that label that, that whole guilt by association that was the assumption I don't know if there's anything that, that that actually backs up that that's the way that people behaved but that was the assumption we're not going to alienate anybody we're not going to give them any reason to not want our product or the product of our advertisers. Um, and in this, in this regard, I mean, the advertisers carried a lot of weight. They didn't want to be associated with something that might uh, lead to um, um, a suspicion of their, of their products or what they were trying to sell. And so there was, that was, the, again, that's what the commercial kicks in. In order to protect what you see as um, a valuable market, you're willing to make sacrifices and, other areas, including maybe the quality or the um, uh, uh, the popularity of the performers that you're using to sell those products. So, in a funny way, then the the pressure to make money on the one hand results in more standardization, but in other ways, it also results in less of it, as the overall thrust of your book suggests. Well, yeah, yes, and no. I think standardization works as long as people aren't exposed to what's different. Once they are exposed to what's different, there's a demand for that, then that becomes exploitable too. But it's exploited as a niche rather than as a mass uh, market. And I think this is one of the things that, again, from the commercial viewpoint, that becomes evident with with those early days of R&B and then into rock and roll, that a small independent company could continue to function without selling millions of records. I mean, if you only press a thousand, but you sell all a thousand, you're in a position to make a profit. Um, it, you're not going to get fabulously wealthy, but you can run a business that way. And I think more and more operators of these companies, and that, in addition to record labels, these would be also apply to smaller radio stations. They would realize we don't need to court the mass audience. We don't have to make millions of dollars. We can maintain a nice, comfortable living by just servicing the people whose tastes correspond with, you know, what, what we're offering. Yeah. So uh, next, uh, next subject in the book there, you're talking a bit about uh, rock and roll as kind of anti-authority. Uh, right. You've got, you know, yakety yak, don't talk back. It's a very nice chapter title. I, I, uh, yeah. I got a chuckle out of that. <laughs> Classic coaster song, of course. Uh, I was, I was wondering, John, um, to, to what extent do you think that what's being discussed here is rebellion against specific social or cultural conventions versus rebellion against authority as such? I mean, those, they may have the similar results, but you know, ultimately they're two kind of different things. Yeah, I think it starts off as just young people wanting to have fun. And I'm not sure if that's necessarily rebellious, but I think that uh, it does it, it does feed into the um, the opposition. The the, the, we're, the older generation trying to crack down and say this music is unacceptable, and at that point, the the, the kids kind of wonder why is it unacceptable, and when the parents. And the older generation can't make a, a viable case. Well, this exposes a degree of hypocrisy that ultimately goes beyond the music. Um, and again, in the in the area of civil rights, for example, or in the area of uh, of sex. Um, obviously, kids driven by hormones <laughs> don't need to be introduced uh, through music uh, to uh, you know their natural impulses. But when parents are complaining that the music is is inflaming their passions, uh, it gives the kids a reason to embrace it. And so it, it's something that. Uh, that allows them to express that rebellion or express their rejection of what they see as the hypocritical views of their parents in relation to these uh, these issues or these behaviors, and uh, and and that starts it builds on itself. Uh, what starts off as fun becomes a way to tick off your parents, and becomes a way to actually express yourself and and assert a position in relation to society that. Uh, um, you know, establishes a, a, an identity for yourself. And so authority maybe becomes less plausible gradually or incrementally over time right. then. 
once once you're able to raise one question about what we might call the um, the establishment line, inevitably somebody's going to raise questions about the rest of that line. And again, to me, the, the, this is most apparent in, in, in the area of civil rights. The, the, the great story that, uh, um, that, that I tell classes and, and, and I include in the book is um, throughout the country, when rock and roll first starts to become popular, there were these, these package shows that I mentioned earlier. So you'd have groups of uh, five, six, eight different uh, recording artists going on tour uh, and uh, each getting up and performing three or four songs. They're big hits. Often those those bills were mixed. There'd be white artists and black artists. And the audience often was also mixed. But in virtually every part of the country, there were some exceptions, but most parts of the country, um, the venues, which typically were theaters, often movie theaters, were, were segregated, uh, whether by law in the South or by practice in the North, they, the, the white kids and black kids were separated in the venue. If it was someplace with a dance floor, there often would be a rope stretched across the floor or maybe chairs lined up in the middle, and the white kids were supposed to stay on their side, the black kids on their side. And then the music would start, and before you knew it, the rope was gone, the chairs were gone, and kids were dancing amongst each other uh, indiscriminately. Uh, and that, that a story. And, they, and that outraged parents. This was, I mean, this was at the heart of, I think, their objection to rock and roll was the, the, what they saw as the danger of race mixing. And it played out over and over again. And as I say, kids dancing together, not seeing anything wrong with that, when the parents objected to it, I think inevitably it raised the question, why? Uh, may, maybe this would be more prevalent in those northern communities where that segregation certainly existed, again, if not by law, then in practice. Um, why? why? Why is this such a big deal? I'm just having a good time. And I think that just opens the door to, to starting to think about you know, other elements of society. I was wondering, John, if you could uh, uh, comment on one more thing here in your last chapter of the book, and that was uh, for the listeners here. Could you go into some detail on what exactly payola was? <laughs> sure. Uh, payola is a uh, phrase, a term that was probably coined by uh, writers of variety because they made up interesting terms for almost everything that they wrote about. Payola is uh, paying to promote music songs uh it has a long history in the music industry going back at least to the mid uh, 19th century where music publishers would hire singers to go stand on a corner and sing a song in the hopes that they would entice people to go into the shop and buy the sheet music uh and then of course over time it evolved when records came along uh artists were uh hired by publishers to record their songs because they derived royalties from the sale of that music uh when radio came along uh, pluggers, as they were referred to, would go into radio stations and ask that the music that they represented be promoted, be played, and they'd offer inducements. They'd you know, slip the program director a $10 bill or whatever it might be. Uh, it was a widespread practice. It had existed for 100 years. It was not illegal. It was just seen as part of the cost of doing business. But it was something that the, the wider public was largely ignorant of. They had no idea that that was the way the business worked. So when rock and roll became really, really big uh, by 1957, 1958, and the, uh, the protests against it based on uh, racial reasons or sex reasons, or uh, uh, there were even charges that it was a communist plot. None of that really took root. Uh, the powers that be, including ASCAP, our old friends ASCAP, uh, decided to charge that the only reason that rock and roll was being played on the radio was because the record companies that made rock and roll, and these were mostly small independent companies, were bribing the disc jockeys to play it. And they raised a big stink about this. It led to a congressional investigation uh, during which a number of uh, very famous figures were brought uh, to testify. Alan Freed, the disc jockey who's largely credited with 
term, uh, coining the term rock and roll, at least in relation to this style of music, uh, ended up losing his job uh, because he refused to um, to denounce the practice of payola, which he was almost certainly guilty of. But as I say, it wasn't illegal and it was common practice for just about everybody. Uh, Dick Clark also was called to testify. Uh, this was early in his career. He was already the host of American Bandstand. And uh, he basically... Uh, testified that he was just a businessman doing what any businessman would do. And he kind of got off the hook. Um, apparently, the, uh, the members of Congress kind of appreciated that take as opposed to Freed being more defiant. Anyway, um, in the end, this was seen as a death blow to rock and roll. Uh, the, uh, the assumption was that Congress and uh, individual states started to pass laws making payola illegal. A lot of the disc jockeys that were associated with the rise of rock and roll had lost their jobs because they'd engaged in accepting payola. Uh, interestingly, the companies that were actually paying the payola didn't suffer any consequences, uh, except maybe the loss of some of these venues for their music. The uh, The whole thing kind of blew over. As I say, it was supposed to be the death knell, and it did kind of represent a bit of a setback. But within a couple of years, um, rock and roll bounces back. You, you couldn't keep it down. It was what the what, what I think the young young audience wanted. And so uh, uh, despite those efforts at the highest levels of government, uh, uh, payola didn't go away. <laughs> and actually, uh, uh, in the 1970s, uh, new laws were written to make it legal again, uh, as long as radio stations would admit they did it. So you'd play a record and say, by the way, this record has been brought to you by uh, the good graces of such and such record label, (laughs) which was basically admitting we accepted money to play it. I was wondering about that. I mean, you know, the Indy 500 is brought to you by Doritos. You know, it seems like, well, entrepreneurialism at work, really. Exactly. And it was tried to be, yeah, again, the the, the opponents of rock and roll wanted to paint it as, as being junk music that was only being played because of these bribes and that it had no, you know, value otherwise. But, uh, but that was clearly not true. By that point, I think young people had certainly embraced it. And, uh, and, and, you know, the influence was starting to be felt on that next generation of artists who were going to emerge in the 1960s and take it to a whole other level of significance. And, uh, in American society and culture. Well, John, we're about out of time here. The last, we got about enough time for one more uh, thought here. And I was, I was wondering by way of wrapping up that uh, in your conclusion, you mentioned that you've seen this kind of fusion between sound and meaning, you know, this, this sound I hear, it means something. Right. Excuse me. So I was wondering, you know, we talk a lot about identity politics now and, you know, civil discourse and things. And I was wondering if that means that ultimately you simply can't appreciate me unless you appreciate pre-black album Metallica. You know, does, <laughs> does this somehow lead, uh, you know, to identity politics in a, in a kind of negative sense where we actually can't communicate anymore because you don't listen to my music? I, you know, I think that's the that's definitely the the dangerous uh, or potentially dangerous outcome. I mean, it's possible to embrace that identity so resolutely and so um, completely that you reject everything else. I, I I don't doubt that that's something that that occurs. E- even going back to the nineteen uh, uh, early nineteen sixties in England, when you had uh, riots between the Teddy Boys and the Mods because they listened to different styles of music and things got really really violent. Um, that that is the worst tendency of, of 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 this process, absolutely. But I don't think that music is the only factor there, and I don't think that's the. Uh, um, I, I don't think that that's always the, the, the final uh, arbiter of, of, of what your identity is. It's, it's an aspect of it. But, I, but I, would, I would argue that there's a more constructive way to view that, that trying to understand what somebody listens to, or for that matter, you know, the, the movies they enjoy or the, or the TV shows or, uh, or the clothes they wear, that, that if, if you're willing to engage in a degree of tolerance and, 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 and try to understand it, that it creates an opening for maybe crossing some of the lines that otherwise separate people. You're, you're, hurting, you're hurting me, yeah. John. You're, you're making me think that maybe I should tolerate people who listen to post-Black Album Metallica. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you're calling me to you know listen to my better angels, and it hurts. Well, 
the, the, the example I would use, I, I'm convinced, I, I'm not one of those people who, and, and of my generation who says that rap isn't, isn't music. I've, I've actually enjoyed a lot of rap and, and hip hop music over the years, but I, but I also understand it's not music that's meant for me. I don't think the artists intend to speak to me with, uh, with that style of music more often than not. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I can't make an effort to understand what is being said and why that resonates with, with, uh, with younger people or people who come from a different uh, background. I think that there, there's an opportunity there to, uh, to open some lines of communication. It doesn't mean I have to like the music or they have to like the music that I enjoy, but just understand that that's, that's part of who you are and, uh, or at least a, a, an entree into understanding who you are. Certainly. I mean, I listen to old country all the time and I've been married for years and my truck isn't broken down. So you know, <laughs> I can still appreciate that. Yeah. So, exactly. So one more, exactly. one more, John, uh, just wonder if you could tell us what you're thinking of working on next in brief here, if you can do it just a minute or two. Sure. Um, that, I, for a number of years, I've been doing research into uh, political uh, comedy that emerged in the 1950s. So kind of going back to the same general time frame of, of, of this book, but uh, but looking at comedians and uh, folks like Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce, a little bit later on George Carlin and the Smothers Brothers, and just try and get a sense of how much of an impact they had on shaping uh, political attitudes in that uh that that early 60s period especially is what i'm interested in that regard so we'll we'll see where that goes (laughs) thank you john thank you very much uh thanks for being with us and uh, this is a uh, quite an interesting book you've inspired me to go back and listen to some uh, music i haven't thought of in a uh, in a long time oh that's always a positive thing all right we'll sign off here now john thanks very much you're welcome 